Hey Zebra friends and welcome back to the Get Your Comic On podcast with Neil and Martin. Say hello Martin. Hello Martin. <laughs> what are we going to be talking to the folks at home about this week? You, know, you can't tell because the whiteboard's behind you. Um, so <laughs> this week we're going to be talking about Spider-Man Far From Home. Thwip thwip. Uh, Swamp Thing, we're going to have a bit of a general discussion uh, because we've got three episodes that we need to talk to you about. We're going to touch briefly on a bit of Annabelle... Far from home? No, Annabelle was coming home. Spider-Man is far from home. Annabelle comes home. Uh, got a couple of comic books. You're fulfilling your destiny and talking about something that's not DC this week, right? Yep. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Mighty Morphin Power Rangers issue 40. What are you going to be talking to the listeners at home about? You'll have to wait and see. Oh, okay. It's a surprise. Uh, and because it's actually been three weeks since we last podcasted and told you it would be two weeks until our next episode... We're also going to throw in a bit of The Lion King, which I felt such an urge to sing for a second there, uh, and a quick little bit about a film that I saw last week, which is called Stuba. So we need to start off with a bit of an apology, because it has been, as I just said, uh, three weeks since we podcasted. We were all kind of geared up to do it, and then your mum came to visit for the weekend, so we were kind of busy, and then I went to see Stuba with Nicola from We Have a Hulk, and then we went to see Lion King. And then I tried to watch eight episodes of The Boys and eight episodes of Stranger Things in the space of a week. And so things got a little bit out of hand. And uh, so here we are. But we'll start off by talking a bit about Swamp Thing, I think. So the last time we podcasted, we were talking about episode uh, four. So we have five, six and seven. But as it's just kind of three episodes, we'll, we'll just touch on it briefly. So episode five was where uh, it was called Drive All Night and that was where Abby tries to find a cure for Alec and she's haunted by her childhood friend's ghost uh, who emerges from the swamp. That was the whole telling of the backstory of Abby and how she came to fall out with the Sunderlands. Then we had episode six which was the price you pay when uh, Daniel uh, recalls his deal with the devil or Possibly not the devil, as it turns out. Uh, and Avery Sunderland sends men after the swamp creature, and Woodrow makes a breakthrough discovery. The synopsis for that one was, Still taking on his human appearance, Swamp Thing takes Abby to a rotten part of the swamp where she gets in danger. Lucilia leads Avery to the swamp with a hidden intention, while Maria meets up with the leader of a shadowy group. How have you found the last kind of three weeks' worth of episodes of Swamp Thing? Are you still loving this one? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not really sure where we're going yet, considering we've only got two eight, episodes. nine, and ten. Yeah, three to go. Three to go. We're not really. It's taken a bit. It's a bit of a slow burner, really. I mean, in episode seven, that's when we were hearing a lot more about the rot and the potential sort of big bad and things are sort of moving towards an end yeah, point. With only well, I suppose you've got to remember that it was planned to be three episodes longer than it is, so that momentum probably was supposed to build up from there over at the course of more like five episodes rather than three. So it might suddenly go at breakneck speed after this. How did you find all of the flashback stuff with Abby with the best friend and how we learn about what actually happened there that we've been hearing about for all these episodes before? Yeah, it was good. Um, It was nice to kind of draw a line under that part of the story so we know what happened and what's going on. Yeah, it did, because we've not really heard about it since. Um... What did you do? You think that there could be anything about the circumstances of it that ties into what's going on in the swamp? It certainly seemed to allude to there being something 
more than just a sort of generic drowning. Well, it all just comes back to the rock, really, and what's happening there. So are we saying it existed long before Avery was doing the, you know, before he had Woodrow doing the experiments and they were dumping all of this waste into the to the swamp? Because we're essentially saying that sort of 10 years or so, if not even more, before Swamp Thing, there was still something that was going on there that was mystical and a little bit dark and twisty. Well, that's been alluded to all the way through the series. I mean, the rock's always been there. It's always never going to go anywhere. I suppose it's just been awoken and upset with everything that's going on. Do you think it's fair that Abby kind of shouldered the blame for it after that, having seen it? I didn't really feel like coming out of that scene that she would take the blame for that, given that really all she did was knock her into the water. That wasn't, you know, why she died. I can, I think if that had been me, I'd have gone running back to the town and been like, oh my god, something took her away in the water! Or maybe she did and no one believed her. Well, I suppose it's her perception. If she hadn't pushed her in, then that would have happened. So. True. Yeah, she did knock her off the bridge. But she was asking for it. Yeah, it's very In enough. a literal sense. Well, she was going to jump anyway, so... Either way, she was going in that water. I thought that episode built quite a good conclusion, though, with um, with Maria Sunderland ending up in the swamp, thinking that she was going to be able to find Shauna in there, and then her ending up in the hospital, and the little fight they had in the water. I thought it was an it like you said it was a nice it drew a nice line underneath that story. So then we can sort of move on to the next well ramp on to the next bit. My only thing and it's kind of undone by the most recent episode at least. But at this point I very much felt like Swamp Thing is uh, a bit of a cameo that dips in and out every now and then. Yeah, he almost feels like a bit of a supporting act, not the main act. Yeah. Now I'm trying to remember if this is the first and this was the first episode actually where we saw the Phantom Stranger so he appeared to Swamp Thing and connected him to the green a bit more didn't he yeah and he actually turns up again in the next episode which is the character that you and I both thought was Neron who did the deal with um, with Daniel on the film set that was actually the Phantom Stranger again it's the same guy is it the same man? it is indeed I didn't pick up when it was the same person at all, but they were discussing it on DC Daily, and it actually very much is. So it, was all, it all ties back to the Phantom Stranger. Oh, yeah. I thought this was a great episode for the horror effects as well. So some of the stuff, uh, again, with the swamp, and also the the flashbacks, and seeing the, the spirit of Shauna, uh, I thought was all done really, really well, and ramped up the horror aesthetic of the show quite well. Yeah, definitely. Even though the the story is really, really slow, and probably too slow at this point, I do I do think there's a lot to be said for the production value of the show, and it still very much feels like watching a, a movie for you know, 45, 50 minutes every week, because it's just so, it just looks so lush on screen. I can see why they've sort of run out of money, because it is big, big budget. Yeah, which is, yeah, I mean, we can lament on that until the end of the season in a couple of weeks, but it's nothing we can do about it at this point. Um, anything else about episode 4 before we move on to a bit of episode 5 no I think we've covered everything (laughs) we don't want to dive too deep into the swamp given that we've got literally so much to talk about which is completely our own fault for for disappearing on you last week 
So the next episode was episode six, and that was called The Price You Pay. And that was the episode that featured um, a bit more on uh, on Daniel, the Blue Devil, and uh, his backstory and how he came to do the deal that has him tied to Murray. And it's also the episode where Sunderland starts sending his men after Swamp Thing, so that's starting to ramp up a little bit. And uh, Woodrow, the synopsis says Woodrow makes a breakthrough discovery. Oh, of course, that is because he, he gives the compound... I was about to say Compound V, I'm on the wrong show, that's that's the boys, uh, to Daniel while he's in the hospital. So I really liked this one. I thought this one picked up the pace quite a bit from the previous one. Although it was good, this one uh, went far more towards pushing the story of the show forwards, particularly with Daniel, and Swamp Thing was in this one more because he had the, you know, the Sunderland goons chasing him around the swamp. So I know you've been kind of looking forward to seeing a bit more of Blue Devil because you've come across him a bit and you have informed us about it in previous conversations. Did that? Did those scenes live up to what you were hoping to see from him kind of as a bit of an origin? I was hoping for a little bit more because it kind of touched on it but didn't really touch on it. What more would you have liked to have seen from it? I suppose we just want to see him become Blue Devil really. So I thought we saw some of that in this episode after he wakes up in the hospital and goes after Sunderland and Woodrow because you see him kind of glowing and incredibly strong and they have a bit of a fight in the backyard before he gets carted away again. But then isn't that because of the compound that Woodrow gave him? I suppose it could be, yeah. Um, I just, I presumed it was sort of blue devil powers manifesting but... I guess that's going to be enhanced by whatever it is that he's been given. What's his uh, What's his sort of comic book power set, or um, what's his What's his shtick? He doesn't really have any powers. Um, he's just more sort of super strength and some fast healing. So I suppose we saw the super strength in a way. So he normally has a, a trident. Yeah. All right. But sort of more recently carries uh, Lucifer's trident, so it allows him to sort of find demons and send them back to hell. Oh, so he's tied to Lucifer as well. Well, Lucifer's trident. Not may not be actually Lucifer. Ah. Just a Lucifer. Not the Lucifer. Mm. Not one Netflix of, Lucifer. One of them. <laughs> but I suppose more recently in sort of what well, I know from Justice League Dark, he was sort of in charge of the Nightlands, but he didn't oh, okay. have very many powers. He was just sort of the power of leadership. <laughs> That's still a still a very good power to have. Something which slightly bugged me from the end of the last episode that carried on into this one was his sudden sort of relationship with Liz, Abby's uh, best friend, the journalist, because we hadn't really seen them together all that much, and then suddenly they were hanging out in the bar. Uh, remember towards the end of the last episode and then she leaves and is attacked by a couple of goons who've slashed her tyres and he suddenly rushes out to save her and gets knocked out which is how he ends up in the hospital for this one just felt a little bit rushed to me that suddenly they were good enough friends that he'd take a tyre round to the back of the head for her I suppose there's not a huge amount of people in this swamp. no, true uh, there are a lot of extras but not that many speaking people <laughs> got a very limited speaking part so... Was they had to be friends to save on the budget. <laughs> a bit harsh. You're going a bit critical of this program towards the end, aren't you? Um, that's just my random stray observation. I have to say, I'm not a huge fan of Woodrow. 
No, I don't like him. I, just, I don't know what it is. I still, so I still see the actor as the dog man from Dark Angel, and his, the way he portrays him is just a little bit weird. There's something, like I get that the Woodrow we saw in Batman and Robin, um, you know, with the guy from Smallville was obviously a bit campy and hyped up, but he feels like he's not actually too far away from from being that. He's dismissing the hair, really. Any minute now, you kind of expect him to go, Bane of humanity! And, you know, start throwing some plants around or something. It's just, I don't know. There's just something about it that doesn't quite sit right for me. Apart from the scenes with his wife. He does the stuff with the wife really, really well. Where he's kind of taking care of her and shows his concern over her because of the, you know, the Alzheimer's or whatever it is that she's got. When he's in those scenes, he seems to be quite tender and it worked quite well. But when he's doing his scientist thing, he just seems a little bit sort of... Wooden. Wooden Woodrow. Very nice. So this episode ends with uh, Abby seeing Alec. That's the cliffhanger, rather than Swamp Thing. What do you think of that for a little jaw-dropper moment to end the episode? Well, because he does that, he, he makes a little hallucinogenic plant pop out his finger, doesn't he? He farts out of his hand. He yeah. farts green dust out of his hand. Let's just, you know, say it as it is. So that was interesting, I mean, because, you know, he's, he's signed on to do the show and it's probably nice to get him back to actually explore the character a bit more. Yeah, but that, that, that's the eternal problem with something like this, though. It's actually, there was a whole load of interesting stuff that you saw in the pilot, but what do you do? Do you make a show called Swamp Thing and have it be about Alec? Because it's before Swamp Thing? So then, is it technically Swamp Thing? Or... Do you skip over that, which might be incredibly interesting, and a lot of people might buy into and enjoy watching, to do Swamp Thing? Because do people find it as believable to see her falling in love with a big hulking green monster than they do to see her fall in love with another actor? I suppose there could have been a bit more time of him before he was Swamp Thing, and then they could build up the relationship that way. I think they did a great job of it in the pilot, but you're exactly right. It's trying to find a balance between how much you can build it up before he has this catastrophic accident compared to how much can we do once he's had it and he's become this monster. Because it becomes a bit more sort of beauty and the beast. Yeah, and I feel like they've kind of skipped over that a little bit. But again, I suppose they've got... They probably had to rush through bits of it, really. I don't know what... Yeah, for all we know, bits of subplot have now been cut out to make the season make a bit more sense because there may be stuff that's that you know was laying the groundwork for what could have been the season two that now won't be well maybe you never know i still think it was a great ending to this episode though it was nice to see him and it was a bit of a ooh, kind of we know where we going here and where we were going was episode seven which we can talk about because it was on last week uh which was called brilliant disguise so i'll give you the synopsis again just so you can try and remember the episode in your mind and this was where uh, Alec is still taking on his human appearance and Swamp Thing takes Abby to a rotten part of the swamp where she gets in danger. And Lucilia leads Avery to the swamp in a hid- with a hidden intention while Maria meets up with the leader of some shadowy group. I love that the synopsis says, Maria meets up with the leader of some shadowy group. Something tells me that was fan written. I don't think an official synopsis would say the leader of some shadowy group. It's a very slow day. It's very hot, so... Okay, so Alec in human form for much of this episode. Thumbs up, thumbs down? I can see why they did it, so yeah, it was alright. 
but reservations are... It does feel a little bit too easy, like, oh, we should probably bring them back, so let's just have some hallucinogenic fart. That'll do with it. <laughs> That's the official term. It's the it's the hallucinogenic fart. You're right. It was a very easy episode. It was a very easy way to put them back together and to show more chemistry between them. There is great chemistry between the two actors. So you can't deny that. And therefore, Abby and Alec have great chemistry together. But that's very different from how you see the chemistry between Abby and Swamp Thing. But did the fanboy in you not love the rotten, the green in this episode? Yeah, this was a good episode. So there was a lot happening in this episode. So we got to we learnt more about the green. We got to see him grow plums. <laughs> you did get to see him grow plums. I thought you were being rude for a minute. Then uh, that was that was a bit weird. So we went from a hallucinogenic fart to plums. Um, well, no, he, you know, give it some context. He offered to make her whatever fruit she wanted and then grew a mysterious plant that had every fruit on it. And yeah. when he yeah. offered her a different type, she just happened to pick his plums. It was a good selection. It was all five of a day there. But no, it was nice to see the rot and how that was manifesting and you know the dead part of the swamp and how it's spreading it's uh if this episode is to be believed it's spreading pretty fast at this point well you know is it the rot is it global warming i think they're probably both the same thing really is it not an analogy for that it probably is how does it play out kind of comic book wise I suppose it's always it's always the the opposite force to the green. Really, you've got the green, which is all the life and the good, and the rocks, yeah. the death and decay. It's just I've never thought about it like that. So it, it kind of is a analogy for deforestation and uh, ruining the environment. It's just an analogy for everything: life, death, opposites, balance. It was nice to see Abby uh, do do a typical Abby thing that we've not seen her do for a couple of weeks and dive headfirst into danger. Whilst Alec was standing on the edge of the rot saying, you know, don't don't go in there. She's like, no, I must go in here. I need a sample. And then, of course, the rot comes and gets her. Yes. Uh, I tell you what I am missing from this show in the last handful of episodes is gore. We've not had any gore. It's kind of disappeared recently. And it's made up for it in other ways. But, you know. Well, you know, the story's ramping up, so you may get some gore this week. I mean that the the rot did sort of pierce her arm, so that was fun. But and they showed that weird virus that was taking over. That was well done. Yeah, I know. I'm just kind of missing the you know like the guy stabbing himself in the arm or bodies being ripped apart. Feels like we started out with an 18 and we've gone down to a PG 13 at this point. But yeah, as you just said, that leads into uh, to the virus. Uh, what did you think about what was going on there? Well, again, so you've got that sort of that metaphor of turmoil of good and dark fighting between her so the rot had infected her but then Alex was trying to grow the the seed within her yes he what did he do so he gave he, her so he, she said to him oh get me that plant from China and yes. he's like alright here you go pop and, and then, then he, she ate it then, it then the plant had to grow inside of her to fight the rot so when he put his fingers in her stomach the <laughs> Was that him helping it grow? I think so. I'm not, yeah. So basically he grew vines out of his fingers and put his hand on her stomach and she screamed a lot. And I have to admit, I was slightly wondering what was going on. Well, that was him making the seed grow. Right. And help, because I think the special seed was a powerful anti-infective. Okay. 
and then the that's how we got rid of the the rot. Why don't we use those in modern medicine? I'm, I'm not convinced they're real. Okay. And I don't think it's very good hygiene to put a plant inside someone. And we, would... we don't really have mystical swamp beings either. In your uh, in your day life as a as a nurse, I would uh, I would like you to write me a research paper on uh, plant based medicine. Thank you very much. <laughs> How to grow your own plums? Yes, <laughs> yes, and other useful things. <laughs> Try, okay, so there was a lot else that went on in this episode around Abby, Lucilla, Lucilia, old Jennifer Beals, sheriff. She's had quite a lot to do in this this kind of three episode arc. Actually, the three episodes we're talking about have had a lot for her. So she found out from uh, that rat boy that her um, Matt, her son, was the one that shot Alec. And instead of running to her son to say, uh, "Excuse me, did you shoot this guy?" She just killed the guy. She killed the guy that told her. Well, she's a she's a mother with edge. My only thing with that was, why did she bother to hold up a newspaper under the gun? Because she still got spattered with blood. Well, I suppose at least then she could... I don't know. It saved her fans, southern hair. Well, it did that, yes. And I suppose you could argue about, sort of... If you're that close to the body, you would get a lot more gunpowder residue on you. True. So from so a CSI a... point of view, she was covering her tracks, maybe. Oh, very good. Didn't realise you were a CSI expert as well. Well, I did like a bit of CSI back in the day. So at that point, I thought the story had gone a bit weird, and I didn't see any reason why Matt would be the one that killed Alec. Because it's not like... Matt had seen Abby and Alec together particularly so there was no I didn't I don't feel like there could legitimately have been a jealousy aspect there so I was a bit like hmm I need you to to pull me along with this a little bit and convince me as to why but then in the scene in the last episode where uh, so episode 6 where she actually speaks to him about it and confronts him and he admits that he did it but he admits that he did it for her because of Avery's file on her. I thought, okay, you're both a bit nuts and both trying to protect each other because she, you know, she killed that guy to protect her son and he killed Alec to protect his mum, even though Alec wasn't, you know, a threat to her. But the threat of what Avery knew, which, I don't know, it's a bit sad, really. It's just, uh, I suppose it's kind of the, the web of her... The toxicity of the swamp and her corruption and spreading, much like the rot. But I would say that that was definitely not the first time that she had killed. Oh no! I mean, you know, I mean, it's alluded to when she talks to Sunderland about the all the stuff that she's done, all the yeah. dirty backhands and stuff. I'm kind of intrigued to... to know exactly what she's done for him over the years. Probably turned a blind eye to get all his money, and then she's taken some. A cut of the prophet. So that then culminates in this episode where she goes and takes him down to the swamp and shoots him in the leg. Well, she tried to shoot him somewhere else, but he moved. (laughs) She didn't do a very good job of trying to kill him, did she? No, he's quite wily though, isn't he? But this was was quite a good twist, actually. I enjoyed this subplot in this episode. So it it felt like Matt and his mum were completely at odds. And then it also felt like Lucilia was at odds with... Both, both of the Sutherlands, Maria and Avery, and that Maria and Avery for for once were actually acting as a team and like a married couple. So they were organising dinner with the Woodrews coming over, and the 
the head of the shadowy figures, which I can't remember the name of. You'll have to remind me. Um, for some reason, I want to call them the Commodores. The Covenant? No, something like that. The Clegane? It's not a Game of Thrones reference. The Conclave. That's what they were called. Uh, and then, and then Twisty McTwisterson... She goes and shoots Avery and thinks she's left him in the swamp, which she did a really bad job of making sure he was dead. Uh, and then we get the twist that actually she was working with Maria all along and Maria was trying to off her husband. So as we see a real switch in Maria's character. So she's gone from this sort of wreck of a bereaved parent to then being this sort of evil mastermind bad. genius yeah, who's taken over the business... And sort of hoodwinked Woodrue and the Conclave into believing her, really. It's clever, though, because when you think back over the the previous six episodes, it's there from the start, because as much as she was the broken woman and the mum, you still saw her do things like control Avery in terms of not giving him money. And from there on, you kind of saw that there was something more to her, but it... I don't really feel like it alluded to the fact that she was going to do this or suddenly turn out to potentially be the villain of the piece. I'm not sure she's... She might be the villain, but she's sort of... She's playing the long game. I felt like when they cast Virginia Madsen in this role, I thought it was going to be a bit of a small role for her, particularly considering it's not a character that's important in terms of the comics. So I'm not surprised that her being her, they've made that role into something much bigger for her. So at the end of the episodes, we see... Avery sort of crawling, crawling his way out of the swamp. swamp. So presumably he's going to have been affected by the swamp as well. Well, I mean, he's got a massive gunshot wound in his leg and he was stabbed somewhere. Yes. So you would think infection alone would wipe him out straight away. But not in that swamp. Well, it depends what gets him. He might eat a, a fancy seed from Asia. He might just be infected with the rot. He might be the physical manifestation of the rot. Is that such a thing? It is, because that's Abby's brother. Ah, okay. And Matt becomes a raven, doesn't he? So there is a theory that all this stuff that's befalling him and all these things that he's done which are wrong are taking him to the point where he becomes a raven. You're looking at me as if to say, what's a raven? What's a raven? Tell us. Uh, so in uh, in the comics, he, he becomes a, a, a literal raven and has to redeem himself for all his sins in his past life. Oh, it's all tied to Constantine and I want to say Sandman as well somehow. I'm not quite sure how. No, I'm getting confused because Constantine is going into Sandman comics. Sorry. Oh, sorry, did you not know that? No. Okay. Uh, so, dear listeners, it was announced this week that there's going to be a Hellblazer crossover with Sandman that's launching a new series that starts later this year from DC. That about brings us up to date on Swamp Thing. So how... I'm not going to ask you to score each episode individually because I'm sure by this point you're probably struggling to remember three weeks ago. But overall impression of the series still enjoying it as much as you were before yeah i mean i'm trying i don't know what it is i'm trying not to get too invested because i know i'm never going to get a conclusion to it yeah that makes sense so i'm sort of quietly optimistic i'm also hoping that one of the announcements at sdccc this week will be something very exciting it will be something regarding like i don't know hbo's picked it up or something yeah you absolutely never know the wonders that come from SDCCCCCC. Uh, it was a magical place. 
I still give the show a massive thumbs up. I have given it a couple more 10 out of 10s, actually, to be fair. And I think my last review... I haven't published my review of episode 7 yet. Uh, but my review of episode 6, I dropped it down to an 8. And that's the lowest score I've actually given the series so far. Purely because I felt like it's not focused on Swamp Thing enough. And it's taken us a little bit too long, given the episode count, to get to a point where we can see a bit of an end game to it. That seems very reasonable. That wraps up our Swamp Thing chat for uh, this episode. We'll be back, hopefully, in an actual couple of weeks this time uh, to tell you about oh episodes eight and nine. Meaning that then we'll have to talk about ten all on its lonesome as the fun as the finale. So we can have the penultimate discussion and then the final discussion. Well done. I taught him the word penultimate, and he's very happy about it. I always thought it was the end. <laughs> uh, we've got a whole bunch of movies to talk about this week, so I'm going to start with Annabelle. Now, I keep saying that Annabelle is far from home, but she's not. That was Spider-Man. Annabelle comes home. So I went to see this movie a couple of weeks ago at Warner Brothers. Um, with you or without you? Without me. Why was that? Because I don't do the horrors. <laughs> uh, no, so I went with my friend Matt, and uh, we went and watched it in the Warner Brothers screening rooms. Before I tell you a bit about it, have a listen to one of the trailers. Don't be scared. Put the pillow down. What's this? You folks need to turn around. Pretty bad accident up ahead. Anything we can do? You're a doctor or something? Or something. Nice doll. That's what you think. Did it work? The evil is contained. <laughs> How could you not tell me you're babysitting for the Warrens tonight? Mwah. And we'll be back early tomorrow morning. Have fun. Don't your parents keep any creepy stuff around? We keep it all locked away in a room. It's not good for anyone to go in there. My dad says that everything in there is either haunted, cursed, or used in some ritualistic practice. What's that? The fairy man. They put coins in over the eyes of the dead so he could take their souls. What about the doll that's in there? Annabelle. She's in a case for a reason. for other spirits. Mrs. Warren? Mom? Is everything okay? Something is happening inside your house and we're not really sure what to do. Can I speak to Annabelle? I'm sorry? You need to give her a soul, dear. She wants us. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
So the synopsis for Annabelle Comes Home is that uh, determined to keep Annabelle from wreaking more havoc, demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren bring the possessed doll to the locked artifacts room in their home, placing her safely behind sacred glass and enlisting a priest's holy blessing. But an unholy night of horror awaits as Annabelle awakens the evil spirits in the room who all set their sights on the new target, the Warren's 10-year-old daughter Judy and her friends. Annabelle Comes Home stars McKenna Grace as Judy, Madison Eisman as Mary Ellen, Katie Serif as Daniela, with Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga as the wonderful Ed and Lorraine Warren. I actually really enjoyed this film. So I have to be entirely honest, super friends. I actually haven't really seen all that much of the Conjuring universe before, and I particularly hadn't seen any of the Annabelle movies before I got my invite to this one. Um, I just thought it looked kind of cool, and I got in touch with Warner Brothers and said, are you doing any screenings for it, because I'd love to, to catch it. And they were nice enough to invite me along. That being said, I thought I'd better catch up fairly quickly. Um, but as it turned out, I only managed to watch Annabelle 1, and I did that whilst I was... Um, mildly inebriated and may have passed out about halfway through and missed it <laughs> so it took me a little while to catch up as to what was going on but actually it was a thoroughly enjoyable movie not overly scary there were one or two jumps and they came from some imaginative places they weren't the most obvious of scares but this film did act very much as what i think is set up for some potential more spin-offs from the Conjuring universe. So there was a lot of time spent on building up other types of demons and ghosts that could potentially appear and could be other investigations for the Warrens from elsewhere. Obviously all the the apparitions and things that you see in the film are from artifacts that are already in their artifact room, meaning that those stories already exist. There's ways to try and capture them or there's backstories to these things. In particular the the ferryman was my favorite. He's the, the the guy that, you know, when you die, they put pennies on your eyes to, to help you pay the toll to cross over to the afterlife. And he is the man that drives the little boat. And I don't know why I'm making an oar movement right now. Might be an electric boat. Might have a steer. Um, he was featured quite a lot and was probably the scariest of all the different creatures that you saw. And I would actually really like to see him get a film of his own just because it was... I think it would actually scare the living daylights out of me, which doesn't happen very often when I watch films, even horror movies. That being said, there are still some very weird moments. Um, there's a there's a boyfriend, or potential boyfriend, love interest for Mary Ellen, who kind of comes over to the house, but because she won't invite him in, he just only appears outside the house. So one minute he's there being chased by a werewolf cloud... Then he's hiding in a chicken coop. And then he comes running out to save Judy and Mary Ellen from the ghost. Swings his guitar at it. And then runs away back into the fog outside the house. Rather than running in the house with everyone else. It's very weird. Feels very much like he was added in reshoots or something very random later on. Because he, it's almost like they felt they couldn't put him in the house. So he just sort of left lingering outside. It's very, very strange. Um, definitely took me out of the film a little bit but still a very enjoyable experience if you want to read my full review of the movie it's on the website now uh, I gave it a good old 7 out of 10 and said Annabelle Comes Home is a wild ride through the Conjuring universe it calls back to plenty of moments from previous movies whilst also blowing the world wide open to the possibility of future spin-offs some awkward humour does detract from the scares but overall Annabelle is still a terrifying and satisfying experience 
What else have you been to see without me this week? Or the last few weeks? Well, you say that as if you're upset that I see things without you. You don't want to go to everything. Well, no, we can't go to everything. I'm very busy. I don't want to live in your pocket. So I also got to see 20th Century Fox's new action comedy, Stuber. I went along to see that with Nicola from We Have a Hulk. She had a spare ticket to a screening, so she very kindly invited me along, which was very nice of her. Uh, We went to the Soho Hotel in London, which was really, really posh. Like, really posh. They've got a very sexy little screening room in the basement um, that we got to go and see that in. It was a fun little event. Uh, Saw Kibler from We Speak Geek as well, which was always nice to catch up with him as well. Uh, but it was it was cool. It was not the kind of movie that I would normally go and watch. We don't really go and see comedies all that much, do we? No, we're very serious people. I've, I was trying to remember. I think the last comedy I saw was Game Night. God, that was ages ago, wasn't it? It's the same producers on this movie, though, surprisingly. And then, I, well, then, even worse, I was trying to think what the last comedy was we saw before that. And I'm pretty sure it was Bad Neighbours, which is like three or four years ago. We're that bad with comedy. So this wasn't the kind of typical movie for me, but I actually really enjoyed it as well. It stars Dave Bautista from Guardians of the Galaxy and Avengers Endgame and Infinity War, obviously, who you will know as Drax. And co-starring alongside him is uh, Kumail Nanjiani, who plays Stu. Uh, There's a few other people who are in this as well. So there's Aiko Uwais, Natalie Morales, Betty Gilpin, Jimmy Tatro, and Mira Sorvino, Karen Gillan. Uh, you will also remember from Guardians of the Galaxy and a bit of Doctor Who also has a little I guess it's a cameo because she's only really in the first few minutes the synopsis for this one is when a mild-mannered Uber driver named Stu picks up a passenger who turns out to be a a cop hot on the trail of a brutal killer he's thrust into a harrowing ordeal where he desperately tries to hold on to his wits his life and his five-star rating have a little listen to the trailer go on indulge yourselves He's a cop without vision. You can't actually see. You assholes got a permit for this hole? He's a driver without a dream. Five cheeseburgers. Five cheeseburgers. There's a sprinkle of cocaine. They don't have cocaine. Hey! Uber? Never Ubered a cop before. Ever taken a bullet for someone? You think by the time a gun is fired that you can jump in front of a bullet? No, I'm starting to question it. Together, they're taking crime for a ride. You cannot leave him in my car. This is an Uber pool, right? No, don't act like you know what Uber pool is. On July 12th. You can do it. You can do this. <laughs> Saving the day. We'll take a pair. Get me closer. No, I'm trying to get away. I got an idea. You've matched with the wrong Uber driver. Batista. Get angry. Weiss. <laughs> Morales. <laughs> Gilpin. Tatrell. With Sorvino. And Gillen. We gotta move. Do you know how many people I just watched die? Five. Particularly four. You can faint him for him. I got shot in this. Rhetorical. Rhetorical question, dude. Stuber. This is a pretty funny movie. Uh, it's it's a bit awkward at times. It's pretty typical of that sort of buddy cop bromance mashup in that it tries to take its action fairly seriously and doesn't quite succeed at its action as well as it succeeds at its comedy. 
the comedy is great, and even Dave Bautista, who I would say isn't exactly... I mean, he's funny as Drax, but it's like awkward humour, whereas this is more straight-up comedy, so I wouldn't say it's his it's his forte, but he actually does it very, very well. And so it, it on the whole, it works, but there are times when it the two different genres kind of butt heads a little bit and don't quite function as well as they should. It's got a fairly generic story. It's nothing that's going to require you to think too much while you're sitting in there and watching it. It's a good summer comedy, really, and that's exactly what I said. My verdict was that Stuber is the kind of easy comedy that makes for a great cinema experience. It's fun, it's kind of crass, and it's got some ridiculous action sequences. It's not perfect, but what movie is? I gave it a 6 out of 10. It's also in cinemas now, and I do actually recommend that you go and check it out, because it, it, it made me chuckle and it brightened up my day. I think we saw it on a Wednesday. Pretty sure it was a hump day. It was. Uh, and, you know, on a depressing Wednesday workday, there's there's nothing quite like a good chuckle at the cinema. It's always nice to see the Hulks. It is always nice to see the Hulks, yes. Uh, that's probably quite enough talking for me right now. I'm going to, you know, silence myself in the corner for a minute. And why don't you tell us about your comic book? So I set you a challenge in our last episode to talk to us about a comic book that's not by DC. Can you tell us what publisher your comic book is from? So from a publication point of view, it's from Titan Comics. So it's British. It is British. Interesting. I don't think I read any British comics. Neither did I until last week. Okay. Uh, Give us a hint. So it's by Ben Aronovich and Andrew Cartmel. With artwork by Lee Sullivan. I happen to know the name Ben Aronovich, so Rivers of London. It is indeed Rivers of London. Interesting. So you're a really big fan of the book series. Yeah, so I love the book series. So for those of you that don't know, Rivers of London follows the life and tribulations of PC Peter Grant, who is a newly caught sort of like a new probation officer of the Met Police. Uh, so essentially, so the first book starts off with him sort of finishing off his probationary period in Covent Garden when a ghost appears to him in the night, and and then he get kind of gets sucked into this sort of special mystical division of the Met Police where he becomes a trainee wizard. I think I've only read the first book. Yeah, I have. It's only the first one that I've read, but it was it was a very enjoyable book series from from just that one. I've just never managed to find the time to read the rest. Yeah, no, they're really nice books. Um, so they're kind of. Like it just follows his progression through his wizard training and then he works with Inspector Nightingale and they solve mystical crimes in London. So it's quite nice if you live in London because it's based in London. So they tend to sort of, so each of the books is focused on a certain aspect or a certain area. So the first one was based in Covent Garden. Then you've got ones like Soho, The Underground. So they're quite nice. Um, but the comic, there's a comic series that goes alongside of it. So this sort of bridges the gap between books. So the first comic, or the first graphic novel, is called Body Works. And I'm not sure, I can't remember which where this comes in book-wise. I'm pretty sure it's, it's somewhere between sort of three and four. So it's quite late in the series. But this follows sort of Peter Grant as he investigates the a series of haunted BMWs. Did you say haunted BMWs? I did. I said haunted BMWs. As in cars? As in cars. That's interesting. 
So it's an interesting take. It's slightly out there. It's a bit more out there than the books, but it is still a really nice story. Um, it's quite funny. From my perspective, it's quite interesting to see the characters sort of drawn, because it's not quite how I pictured them when I was reading the books, but it's pretty close. That's interesting, because that, that is like almost like when books get turned into films. If you've already read the book, you have a very... Books are very descriptive, and you do build up a very great picture in your mind as to what you think people will look like. So it's interesting to see how it lives up to it. Yeah, so pretty most of them are pretty much spot on. I would say Inspector Nightingale is really different in my head than he has been drawn. Not that that's a criticism. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know what it is. He's, he's, a, lot, no, he's a bit more suave and sophisticated in my mind. Where Nessie looks a bit more sort of grumpy English gentleman. Oh, really? Oh, okay. He does look quite grumpy from the image you're showing me right now. But still, I mean, it's a nice, it's a nice comic. It's a nice story. It's you don't have to have read the books to be able to pick this up. It, you, it's probably helpful if you have a some understanding of the novels. But on its own, it's still a, it's still a good graphic novel. And is this collecting together a series, or is this a, was it published as a standalone graphic novel? So it is a series, but this is collected together as a graphic novel. Oh, okay. It's quite short, so as a as a novel, as a graphic novel together, it's only 130 panels, um, so it's not the longest. So you're talking maybe four or five issues. Oh, right, okay. So, uh, yeah, so it's like the first arc, basically. Yeah, and, and they're quite nice. So I think there's a couple, there's about four or five of these now, so they bridge, they're bridging the gap between between the books or looking at different stories and these and they're all linked together so in some of the books they'll mention the case of the haunted bmw oh okay so you were kind of you already had awareness of it without having read the story of it from before yeah so they'll mention things like oh do you remember when that haunted bmw nearly ran us over and you think oh that's the comics ah interesting okay so it ties together the universe yeah that's actually really great from a storytelling point of view and how did you find the artwork overall? So it was a bit different when I'm used to. Again, it's got a very British feel about it. I was going to say, from that panel that you just showed me, it does look quite British. So I'm, I'm mostly, a, as you know, a bit of a DC kid. So it was a new experience for me, but I still I quite liked it. And most importantly, uh, scores out of 10? I would probably give this a uh, 7. And will you be reading more? I may do, actually. I think I will, yeah. Because we've got a long gap before the next book, so I need something to fill the rivers gap in my life. I thought you picked up a book the other day and said this one's his new one, it's just come out. So that is a new one, but it's not based in the, the storyline of Peter Grant. Ah, okay, so is it in the same universe? I or? think it's in the same universe, but it's set in the past. Okay. So it looks at the wizard, the rise of the wizards in oh. early on. Because at the minute there are no wizards left other than Nightingale. Okay, and... Am I right in thinking this a film? So there are, I think it's going to be a TV series. Ah, right, okay. So Simon Pegg has signed up to produce yes. and write. In my mind, that's what I was thinking, but I wasn't sure whether that was that or Sam Manslim for a minute there. No, so this is Rivers, yeah. Okay. So I'm not sure where that, I think, I'm not, I can't remember where it's coming to, but they're in talks to uh, developing it. And I think they're going to say it's going to be a mixture it's going to be based on the books, but it won't follow the, the lineage of the books strictly. Interesting. So if you've not read it or seen them, by all means, check out both the books and the comics. 
available now where all good books and comics are sold. On the interwebs. <laughs> that was my salesman voice. Okay, well, well done. Uh, I'm going to give you a little round of applause for, for picking a comic that wasn't DC. Okay. Um, we won't challenge you to do that for a while. You can go back in your in your comfort zone for the next one, maybe. Well, good, because I've got quite a lot of Titans and Red Hood to catch up on now. <laughs> uh, so, we're going to dip back into the world of movies quickly and uh, and talk about The Lion King. I can't say The Lion King without wanting to go... But rather than listen to me uh, annihilate the uh, the song sung by the wonderful Lebo M, have a listen to the trailer. Simba, look at the stars. Can you feel the love tonight? The great kings of the past look down on us from those stars. The peace the evening brings. Those kings will always be up there to guide you. The world for once in perfect harmony with all its living things. And so will I. Disney's The Lion King. Tickets on sale now. So Disney's The Lion King hit cinemas on Friday the 19th of July. It is a remake of the 1994 animated classic, which tells the story of Simba. After the murder of his father, a young lion flees his kingdom only to learn the true meaning of responsibility and bravery. This new version stars Donald Glover as the adult Simba, Beyonce Knowles Carter as the adult Nala, Seth Rogen as Pumba, Chiwetel Ejiofor, who I can never pronounce and I'm really sorry, uh, who has quite a surprisingly good singing voice, as Scar, John Oliver as Zazu, James Earl Jones as Mufasa, John Canny as Rafiki, Alfre Woodard as Sarabi. Who's Alfre Woodard, Marty? John Luke, blow up the damn ship! JD McCrary as the young Simba and Shaddy Wright Joseph as the young Nala. As the uh, as the horrible hyenas, you've got Keegan Michael Key as Kamari, Eric Andre as Azizi, and Florence Kasumba as Shenzi. I've missed someone out. I've missed Billy Eichner, who plays Timon. He's right at the end of the cast list for some reason. So we got to see this movie on Sunday. Uh, we very kindly got invited along by Disney UK to uh, to attend the premiere. I'd call it a red carpet, but it was somewhere between orange, gold and yellow. Sunset. <laughs> Sunrise. Sunset. Sunrise. Sunset. Uh but I did slightly misinterpret just how long this day was going to be. So we had to arrive at two o'clock to pick up our wristbands to be in our special viewing area. The pen. By 3.15 uh, to then watch the celebrity arrivals to then watch the movie. So in actual fact, we got to Leicester Square at two o'clock and didn't get home until about 10 o'clock at night. So it was a really long day, but it was really, really good fun, and we got to share it with uh, with Nicola and Chris from We Have a Hulk. And if we haven't mentioned it enough on this show, we do love to hang around with the Hulks because they are lovely. Seconded. So who did we see? Uh, we saw Keegan Michael Key. We saw Seth Rogen, who I got a selfie with. We saw Billy Eichner, who I just think of as the weirdo husband from American Horror Story. 
uh, Apocalypse. I couldn't remember what it was called for a minute then. Who else did we see? We You're saw... forgetting the most important person oh, that we yeah. saw. We're leaving him to last because okay. he's so special. We saw uh, Elton John. We did. Taryn Egerton. We did. And who else? Harry and Meghan. Oh yeah, we saw Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Um, why did you not want me to mention to her that she was in an episode or two of Fringe? I just thought it could be really cringy when the royals are there. Hello, I remember when you were an FBI agent in Fringe. How was that? It's a really random thing to say to someone. <laughs> uh, well, I didn't say it, so there you go. Who else did we see? We saw uh, oh. Florence Kasumba, who was, I just said, in the cast list, was one of the uh, hyenas. You got a cheeky wave from Hans. Oh, you've just ruined the surprise. That the, wasn't a surprise. The, 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 the best one on the list, oh. Hans Zimmer. There was a better one on the list that we okay, saw. Okay, there was okay, there was a very exciting one. But for me, uh, Hans Zimmer, absolutely, hands down, amazing. I screamed at him like a fangirl, and he turned round and slightly scowled at me, and then smiled and waved. Because you shrieked like a woman. That's probably why he scowled at you. He probably thought, afraid. "Who is who is in pain?" <laughs> I, look, he's one of my favourite film composers. It was very exciting to see him. I've seen him twice now. Well, technically, I've seen him three times because we've seen him in concert. Um, you know, I saw him at the premiere of Batman vs Superman, and I shrieked so loudly that I, he still couldn't hear me over the crowd, and I didn't get to talk to him. So, you know, at least this time I stepped it up from nothing to a wave. We're like best friends. But yes, I'd I'd forgotten what you were alluding to there, which was that Jovian Wade was there, cyborg from Doom Patrol. Sadly, he was quite far in the distance, so we couldn't quite get to him. And for a second, I couldn't remember his name, and I didn't want to just shout Booyah. He would have got it, though. He would have. Yes, I'm sure he would, and I'm sure he would have found that very funny. But as I was saying, it was quite a long day. Every single celebrity had to traipse past us in order to get into the premiere, and then we got to walk the orange carpet right at the very, very end. That was amazing. Yeah, that was fun. A woman looked at me and said, who the F is that? Right at the end of the red carpet, this woman scowled at me. And she was like, "Who? Who is this person?" Oh, did they? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I just laughed and waved, as if to say, "Like, oh, hello." <laughs> with the famous podcast posse. Exactly. It's Geico and the Hulks. But subsequently, I have seen myself on BBC News, ITV News, Sky News, and YouTube, plus all the official footage that Disney's released. And if you look really hard, you can see my elbow. Yes. You seem to do a very good job of ducking behind me whenever the camera was anywhere nearby. What well, just happened to drop something every time? Oh, every time. Yeah. Every single time. Got really um, butterfingers, you know. Yeah, clearly. Uh, I was particularly unimpressed by my appearance on BBC News because that's after Harry and Meghan have walked past and for some reason I just look really unimpressed. <laughs> I just seem to be going, oh, like, is that it? But I think that's my favourite little video where you look really unimpressed. Then you do a little camp wave. Oh no, that's a different video. Uh, that was the video from before as they walked past when I waved. Because I was just saying, I don't know what else to do. Because he went and shook hands with everyone in the in the pen before us. So I was like, he's, he's either going to walk over here and I'm going to have to shake his hand. Or, uh-huh, awkward wave. I'm really glad I didn't come over because I wouldn't have no idea what to say to him. I don't know what I would have said to him either. Just, hello, enjoy the film. <laughs> Enjoy the film. <laughs> or I would have said to Megan, so, can you tell me what it was like working on Series 2, Episodes 1 and 2 from Fringe? You know, what was it like working with uh, Walter and Peter? And did you get to meet Olivia? 
and I realise all of them have real names, but they've gone right out of my head right now. And she would have looked at him and gone like, what? Joshua Jackson, Anna Torv, and uh, for some reason I can't remember the name of the guy that plays Walter. That's bad. That man from Lord of the Rings. John Noble. Don't know why I couldn't think of that. John Noble. Bit of a major disappointment for uh, Beyonce fans on the red carpet though, wasn't it? Well, she wasn't on the red carpet. Well, exactly. She got out of the car and walked into the cinema. We wouldn't have even known she was there if she hadn't appeared on the screen for about five seconds. It was like she was there and then she wasn't there. And it was done. Enigma that is Beyonce. But more importantly, what did you think of the film? It was okay. Be honest. It was visually stunning. It was absolutely hands down one of the best visual effects movies I have ever ever seen in my entire life and that was about it to be honest with you I think I connected with it slightly more than you did I just uh, I just feel like it didn't need to be remade no I agree with you as with most of these animation to live action I didn't feel like it needed to be made for me I felt like the effects were so photorealistic that that might as well have been a nature documentary that had a bit of a forced narrative. You know, like when you watch a David Attenborough and it's like, and now the lonely lion tries to escape from a hyena. Only in this case, they all talked and sang. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was so hard because they were so well done that they had no real, there was no way for them to emote. Yeah, that's the thing. They look so real that there's no emotion. Because how how does how do animals emote? They don't have facial expressions. I've never seen a lion smile. No, but you can't argue with how the mouths moved really well. Like they didn't have human mouths. It was still in the, you know, in the vein of the different animals. So they they moved in a way that really well mashed up the idea of animals and talking. No, they moved like an animal's mouth would move. It was to make a sound, yeah. which was really interesting. But it, I felt it was really difficult to sort of connect with it in a way. I connected with key moments. So like the death of Mufasa, yes. And some of the bits like Akuna Matata, I loved because it was just fun. But overall, it was a very difficult movie to try and engage with too much just because of that. Like it translated better as an animation than it did as yeah pseudo live action. Yeah. And it, it is pseudo live action, but I really enjoyed hearing um, John Favreau talk about how they made it because it was more complicated than I thought it was. They almost what they created this weird VR world and filmed yeah. it in there. So they created all the CG models and then put them into a VR world and then filmed the VR world using a real camera crew so that it was filmed like a live action movie. So in other words, everything was created and then. It was then re-filmed so that it moved more naturally within camera to make it be more like live action. Very, very clever. And it is a, a very impressive film visually. It's so, so impressive. Before seeing any of it, I thought it was um, real location footage with CGI animals. But now I don't know what was real and what wasn't. It could be The Matrix. <laughs> it could be The Matrix. Uh if it wasn't for the fact that the animals talked, I know, then I would have presumed that they were also real. There were certain aspects where I thought, oh god, is that a real lion? But then it's like, yeah. oh no, actually. It's... Some of the 
nature style shots where you just saw sort of animals running or roaming or being in their natural habitat i thought is this stock footage but i, I just don't know i genuinely don't know what was real and what wasn't yeah it was very it was very well done other than that if i know how and i take it off it's, <laughs> it's very frustrating that it was so well made at least if it was a badly made kind of emotionless film you could critique it for not being very well done but it's not that it's not well done it's too well done yeah they've kind of outdone themselves yeah completely they've done it so well that it's just it's impossible for it to work in a way which is a crazy place to be in I've, I don't think I've ever talked about a film before and said it's made so well that it doesn't work <laughs> but it was always going to be an interesting one because it's a complete it's so how to translate it into live action is tricky yeah I'm glad that they brought Hans back to redo the music and Elton John came back interesting that they brought Pharrell into the mix who I mean he first worked with Hans on uh, Spider-Man 2 the amazing Spider-Man 2 obviously not Spider-Man 2 Sam Raimi era and they've worked together a lot since and I think that that worked in the respect of Hans can talk about how he wrote the music the first time round and then Pharrell can bring a fresh set of ears and eyes to it to just contemporise it a little bit give it a bit of a, a modern edge yeah what do you think of the casting I didn't really feel like it needed to put Donald Glover and Beyonce as the banner stars because they weren't Simba is young for most of the film so they don't end up doing a huge amount as the adults Donald Glover did more than Beyonce did I didn't feel like she did more than a handful of lines no I, I could have uh, take her or leave her really I mean she wasn't really she was very laboured in the way she said things it was all it's all so serious yeah. you need to return to the pride Simba it made it, it was very reminiscent of of Goldmember <laughs> it just felt a bit cheesy and forced great that James Earl Jones came back to play Mufasa again that voice is just unparalleled although there was a scene where he laughed and it sounded like some really weird cheesy Darth Vader laughing which I thought was quite funny I mean it's very difficult to define his voice as anything other than Darth Vader but there was a particularly Darth Vader-ish moment I did however think that Seth Rogen who I don't normally engage with hugely uh, and Billy Eichner were excellent as Timon and Pumba they were a very very good comedy pairing yeah they were yeah they were not bad they were good to moan and pimba they brought a little bit of light humor yeah and they updated some of the humor as well i was a little bit shocked by when they uh started singing a song from a different disney movie though well it's just a bit a bit cross promotion yeah i was just like hang on a minute hang on are we gonna have a chorus of be our guest in the lion king what are we doing well it could be the same universe you don't know <laughs> the Disneyverse. I haven't actually written a review for this one yet. I'm I'm planning to get it out by Friday when the film comes out. Uh, what would you score this out of ten? Uh, six. I'm probably thinking a six or a seven as well. So Disney's The Lion King is in cinemas from Friday the 19th of July. Uh, and yeah, go check it out and let us know what you thought of it because I would love to hear... Uh, an opinion from someone who's not a reviewer because all I've read so far is the reviews which have all said very much the same thing which is looks amazing but lacking in emotion I'd love to know what some real people think of the movie 
you know how to find us on Twitter. It's at Get Your Comic Con, or my name is at Neil Vag. Martin, you are at Boy Wonder nineteen eighty nine because I remember that there's a nineteen in there. Uh, likewise, you can find us on all social media platforms: Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, or just drop us a comment on the website. I guess it's me now for a comic book, isn't it? So I am going to tell you about uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers issue number 40, which is written by Ryan Parrott with art by Danielle, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, D. Niculo, uh, and also uh, Walter Bayamonte. It's published by Boom Studios, and this is the beginning of the Necessary Evil arc. So this follows up after uh, the kind of the mop-up from uh, the Shattered Grid storyline that's been going on for a few months now. So if you've not been keeping up with Power Rangers comics, Shattered Grid was the first event that Boom Studios has done since taking over the license for for Power Rangers. And that saw uh, a Tommy from another universe, the the Lord Dracon version of Tommy, take over and try and come to our universe. And it mashed up all the different Power Rangers from all of the, the different 25 years of history of the Power Rangers franchise. And it was huge. It saw... Um, the end of Kyle Higgins' run as writer on the series, and he has now been replaced by Ryan Parrott. And this is the first issue where we kind of bring things back to normal. So for the last couple of months, it's been a bit of a a chore to read, I have to say, but that's just because it's been stuck in this little mire of wrapping up the the final bits of the uh, Shattered Grid storyline. So we've been inside the Morphing Grid while a, a little disparate group of rangers have been trying to put things back together. But now that they've got their timeline back, we're jumping back to normal continuity. We've got a new team who are working on the series, and actually this issue is excellent. This is the first one to feature Tommy in his White Ranger costume, which is very cool to now see uh, drawn in the series. And this is also where we first meet Rocky, Adam, and Aisha, who take over as the Red, Yellow, and Black Rangers, as um, Jason, Trini, and Zack have now left to go to the World Teenage Peace Conference. And what Power Rangers Comics does really well is it takes storylines and events that were in the you know the kids' TV series in the 90s and contemporizes them and just gives them a slightly more grown-up spin. So here, with Tommy taking on the White Ranger uh, powers, we get to see more of how that's affected him. So because this is a new energy that's been crafted by Zordon and Alpha, there are some side effects, and actually Tommy's body is struggling to deal with the with the new powers and there's going to be more of a storyline around how it affects him as a person whereas in the tv series it was more about just you know he's got a cool new costume and there's going to be some cool new toys this issue also introduces lord zed into the continuity we've not had him before we've taken rita aside so this is a real step on for the timeline but what impressed me the most about this is the fact that it opens with uh well there's a there's a flashback that kind of ties up the very very last loose ends from shattered grid but then we jump to the rangers battling a huge bird monster on tower bridge in london i'm showing you the artwork right here very impressive and it just it really blows the show's uh premise wide open when you think about something like power rangers and you think about that tv series or even the 2017 movie it completely focused on angel grove and that small town and how they protect that small town and then the kids tv series that works but when you're trying to take a franchise like this more seriously and you think these are these are world apocalyptic threat level events then actually is it the right thing to have them kind of 
you know, fenced into this one small American town. No, that probably doesn't work. So to have the the comic books open up the scope and have it take on a slightly more global feel really gives it uh, a greater weight when you're reading it. You you get that sense that actually they are the Avengers or the Justice League of this particular universe and that actually it's not just this small town of a few thousand people they're protecting. It's everyone. And that really works for it. It really makes it feel like a, a much more real and true entity. It feels more authentic to itself. So there's a lot that goes on in this issue because it's reintroducing the, the, the franchises to where it is and taking that little step forward. So, you know, we're meeting Lord Zed, we're meeting Rocky, Adam and Aisha, we're seeing all of those key moments and it's all uh, it's all just set up for the, for the necessary evil storyline that's going to come on from there. So interesting new elements they've added is how the three new rangers kind of take to the fact that they've got powers. Again, in the series, they were just excited to be power rangers and it was all awesome and, you know, they kicked butt and it was cool. Whereas right now they feel very much like they've been dragged into something that they didn't necessarily want to be part of. They've had to leave uh, where they were living. They've had to move to Angel Grove. They've left their friends behind. They've left their school behind. There's a lot of reaction to that that's much more emotional to what we're used to having seen in the TV series. So for readers, I think it's very exciting to see that which you find familiar, but done in a really cool new way. And there's also a great little stinger at the end of the book that teases exactly what uh, the three rangers who left are up to. And it seems like maybe uh, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers team aren't quite in the know as to what uh, Jason, Zack and Trini are actually up to, which is a which is quite a cool little tease. I'm just going to show Martin the artwork so that he can... Ooh. Ooh it seems like they're on some kind of special mission. Uh, so I'm hoping there's going to be more to explore with, uh, with that storyline a little bit further down the line. So if you want to read my full review, it is on the website now. I gave this an 8 out of 10, and I said Mighty Morphin Power Rangers' 40th issue is a huge return to form for the series. Following the Shattered Grid event, the Rangers have been quite literally floating around the Morphin Grid, figuring out the next move, and now Ryan Parrott has kicked off what could be one of the series' biggest and best arcs to date. It's available in comic book stores now. Uh, issue 41 should in fact be out in the next week or so, so I'm pretty much uh, hanging on what comes next in this storyline. But... Uh, if you're not reading this and you happen to be a fan of the TV series or just someone that's looking for something that's not DC and Marvel but still has that superhero, save the world kind of ethos to it, then definitely run out and pick this up because it really is an excellent series. And that nearly brings us to the end of our show. Episode 18. Nearly at the big old 2-0. So that leaves us one last, just, you know... Little um little film release that we thought we'd talk about just because uh, we saw it. It was kind of cool, which is um it's this movie you might have heard of. It's called Spider Man Far From Home. Have you heard of that? Mm, rings a bell. I tell you what, I'll play the trailer and then see if you can remember what it is. Everywhere I go, I see his face. I just really miss him. Yeah, I miss him too. I don't think Tony would have done what he did if he didn't know that you were going to be here after he was gone. You going to be the next Iron Man now? Well, no, I don't have time. I'm too busy doing your jobs. Oh. What? I'm kidding. Look, keep up the good work. Because I am going on vacation. Heads up. Nick Fury's calling you. 
I don't really want to talk to Nick Answer Fury. Answer phone. Why? Because if you don't talk to him, then I have to talk to him. I don't want to talk to him. You sent Nick Fury to voicemail? I gotta go. You do not ghost Nick Fury. I think MJ really likes me. Reminds me when I first fell in love. I... You're very difficult to contact, Spider-Man. This is Mr. Beck. Who could have used someone like you on my world? Your world? The snap to our hole in our dimension. You're saying there's a multiverse? We have a job to do, and you're coming with us. There's got to be someone else you can use. What about Thor? Off-world. Captain Marvel. Unavailable. But I'm just a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Please, you've been to space. What do you want, Peter? I want to tell a girl who I really like how I feel. MJ. I am Spider-Man. I mean, it's kind of obvious. You're right, you may not be ready. But this is my responsibility. The world needs the next Iron Man. I work with Spider-Man. You work for Spider-Man? I work with Spider-Man, not for Spider-Man. New plan. So Spider-Man Far From Home is in cinemas now. It came out on July the 2nd in North America and July the 3rd here in the UK. It stars Tom Holland as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man, Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury, Jake Gyllenhaal as Quentin Beck Mysterio, Marissa Tomei as May Parker, John Favreau as Happy Hogan, Zendaya as Mary Jane, or sorry, no, MJ, don't call her Mary Jane because her name's Michelle. Uh, Jacob Batalon as Ned, Tony Revolori as Flash Thompson, Andrew Rice as Betty Brandt, and Remy He as Brad Davis. So once again, we were really lucky in that we got to see this um, a week, I think it was, before it was released. Uh, Sony Pictures very, very, very kindly invited us along at kind of short notice, actually, to uh, to the press screening launch event in London. And even more lucky, we got to see this film in IMAX. It was uh, it was shown in the Cineworld in Leicester Square, and some people got to see it in the uh, in the super screen, and some got to see it in IMAX. And we were very, very lucky that we got to see this in IMAX, and it was stunning. It was an amazing looking film. It was so cool. Such a huge event as well. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what you thought about Spider-Man Far From Home? Um, I really liked it. So we got free pizza. Which we, was, yes, we got free pizza. Not the most important thing, but we did get free pizza on the way into the screen. Which is always a bonus. And we got to see the Hulk, who so we never get to see. <laughs> I know. It's like, we hadn't seen them in so long. Yeah. And then we got to see the film, which was really, really good. Which was surprisingly really good because I felt really positive and happy afterwards, which never happened. No, I know you. You were really excited afterwards, and that's that's unheard of. Mm. Um, for those of you that haven't maybe picked up on it, there is there is a Scottish accent there, and that does sort of mean that you know the glass is half empty most of the time. So for you to say that something was excellent is a is a shockeroonie. I know it broke it. Kind of broke down that ice ice exterior, and I was like, oh, I, I quite like this. <laughs> and um, well played, Holland. Well played. I I did an act. I did a first as well. So I shocked quite a few people, and I gave this film a ten out of ten. And if you know me and you know my reviews, I'll quite often give TV series a ten out of ten, and I'll sometimes give comic books a ten out of ten. But I have never given a movie ten out of ten in a review before. 
So my, my review verdict was Spider-Man Far From Home is easily one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe's finest movies. It's fast-paced, it has bombastic action, and it's uh, it's got some genuine humour and heart that creates a truly awesome cinema-going experience. I I could find very little to fault with this movie. So I think it's probably the best Marvel movie I've seen, and it's not even a true Marvel film. I Well, I, I turned to you like three-quarters of the way through the film and said, is it ironic that the Marvel Cinematic Universe's best film isn't strictly a Marvel-only production? Uh, I think this is my number one MCU movie. I would agree. It is top of my list now. It's not flawless. I'm not going to tell you it was perfect, because it's not, but what movie is. But what it is... It's just so much fun. It's just... It absolutely took all my cares away for a couple of hours and was nothing more than a a really fun, true, heartfelt comic book movie. I agree. I agree. There was a moment at the beginning where I was a little bit worried when they talk about the blip and they kind of make sure that you've covered uh, Endgame for anybody that's not seen it or to catch people up. Uh, it was very, very important that this movie dealt with that five-year gap, though, because we had to understand the age differences between some of the students. But they did it in such an amazing and comical way. But this was my thing. So when the humour aspect of it kicked in, I, for a minute, kind of went... <sighs> Ooh, like, am I supposed to laugh at this? Because actually, Endgame was a very serious... Well, and Infinity War were, you know, very serious movies. I feel kind of bad that I'm laughing at what happened. And then it just became so funny that I didn't actually care. Yes, yeah, was it does kick off with a quick... Uh, do, do you think, oh, God, do I laugh? And I think, yeah. yeah, I'm going to laugh, because it's quite funny. And then it balances its humour and its action out very well. So Tom Holland is, is just ridiculously likeable as both... Spidey and Peter Parker which really helps but it's a great cast around him as well I think all of the characters were done really well in this movie I would like to have seen a bit more of uh, Happy and Aunt May together because they seem to be quite a funny pairing yeah no but it was like you said it was a really the supporting cast were really amazing and they they did what they're supposed to do and support yeah they did they did no one tried to steal the limelight they were all genuine supporting players and I think the fact that it moved countries at nice little intervals, kept it really, really fresh, and they didn't get stale at any point and didn't get too slow. Yeah, it worked really well, and it didn't feel like it was forced either. And I think we're probably safe to talk full spoilers because it's been out for, for nearly two weeks now, but I think the villain was well done. I think the twists were obvious, but were also well done. I mean, did you. What was your impression of Mysterio knowing he was in the film? He had to be a bad guy. Yeah. Um, I do, ooh, um, I, this isn't an offensive question uh, how much do you know about him comic book wise uh, not a lot I'm not a massive Marvel reader as you will know no but I know you used to watch the 90s Spider-Man cartoon so obviously he was, was in that Was he? I don't remember him being in that yeah. so he's most often portrayed as like a, um, an a on set special effects artist in Hollywood that um, just grows a bit villainous so I was wondering how they would translate that to film. And it might not be wholly satisfying the way they did it. It's a little bit convenient, but that convenience is still highly enjoyable. And it is an interesting spin on the events that have been happening as well. Yeah, they tie it into the rest of the cinematic universe very well. 
I think it's not uncoincidental that he's looking a little bit like Robert Downey Jr. in this film. He's you know, got a bit of the old facial hair going on. But it all feels necessary to take Peter from where he is at the end of uh, Endgame to where he is at the end of this movie. Yeah. What did you think of the Elementals as a... I, I, you can call them villain, but I don't know that you really, if that's quite the right word, as a obstacle for Spidey to get through. I didn't. I wasn't a massive fan of the Elementals. They felt a bit too out there and too big for Spider. Spider-Man. Well, they were from the from the multiverse, or were they? Yeah, so I thought they were they were a bit to start off. They were a bit too far fetched, but then as the story un, untwined and unpicked, it was made more sense. I would agree. I I liked. I think the Venice scenes were my favourite. I thought that was really well done. I liked the water one best. That worked the best out of what we saw, I think. And there were a lot of practical special effects in that scene, which I really appreciated as well, that it didn't rely too heavily on CGI to begin with, although that kind of ramped up as the film went on. But I agree in that they felt a little bit out there until they're given a bit more context in the story. Uh, the, the whole idea of the multiverse that we've seen in the trailer, I thought that was very clever the way that was played out and the way that actually turned out and the 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 misdirection that was in that and what i think is really clever when you think on it is that mysterio as a character his whole shtick is the art of misdirection so he you know he creates images that distract you from what he's actually doing and actually the whole film did that so not just his character but uh the trailers things we saw in the trailers misdirected to what they were actually about in the film he misdirected in terms of his character as to who he was Uh, and then if you think about the end credit scenes the film even ends with an end credit scene that proves that half the film was also a misdirection it's all very clever it's all connected it is it's very well done good job sony as a yes well done sony as a product it's just i think it's just really well made as an all-round product i still think that they're uh their effects house is not the best. I think that there are times when Spider-Man looks very CGI. His costume doesn't quite cast the right shadows at times, or doesn't it doesn't wrinkle like real fabric, and it ends up looking unnatural. And that that takes me out of the film slightly at times, particularly I think in the sort of third act final battle. I think there's some moments in there where he looks quite rubbery, but the action that's going on around him and the story that's taking place is too good for it to become a distraction which is a good thing in the end, but I do think there's still room for improvement there in some of the production levels. But it doesn't take away from the overall awesomeness of the film. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually really liked MJ in this film as well. So I was very dubious of her character in the first one. I felt like, why are we getting rid of Mary Jane for this sort of slightly aggravated Michelle? And then when they did the twist at the end of Homecoming where she was like, oh, my friends call me MJ. That was a no. That was a no, 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 no moment for me. But I really liked her in this film. Yeah, I warmed her. She's She kind of, she redeemed herself in this film quite a lot. They kept the wit and the, the edge there, but they gave her enough warmth elsewhere that it, it really worked. And I believed the relationship between the two of them. And I enjoyed her standing on her own two feet in her own scenes. So like when they're in the Tower of London and she's actually sort of helping Happy, it felt natural and it, it worked for her in character. 
gotta love Happy. Happy's amazing. It was great to have him in this film. Yeah, he should be the next Iron Man. Well, there were so many callbacks to Iron Man 1 as well. This film reflected Iron Man 1 brilliantly to close off that whole first three phases in the Infinity the Infinity Saga, as it was. To things like the crafting the costume, all those bits and pieces like that, having Fury and Happy both be there as they were in that film as well. I, just, I think it was very well plotted, very well made, very well calculated as a close to this whole first decade of Marvel. Yeah, because you've got to think... Infinity, Endgame, whatever, whatever one it was. Endgame. Endgame. Did leave a couple of unanswered questions, whereas this draws a line under everything and yep. caps it all off. Book ended. And we didn't dwell too much on Stark either. He yeah. was there. It was felt, you know, his loss is felt, and you know that the world feels his loss, but it's not it's not dour in any way. You're not completely under a cloud for the whole film. There is, you know, there's time to grieve, and there's grief there, and... Peter has to work through that, and as does Spider-Man, and it's done really well. And well, so Iron Man kind of makes a cameo as a you know sort of zombie, which was fun. Yeah, he does. Yeah. The Mysterio sequences are really cool. I felt like I was watching a Scarecrow sequence from the Arkham games play out live on screen. Yeah, that was very well done. That was uh, very, was very well done. Very crazy on the old eyes, especially on an IMAX screen. Yeah, I'm glad it wasn't 3D. I think if it had been 3D, I probably would have vomed. It was there was some crazy sort of stuff going on there. Um, like I, I, I've lost the power of speech because just thinking about it has made my mind go wonky. Is that the technical term? Yes, it is. Uh, I don't even know what it was that I was going to say. In my head, it was really intelligent, but it's just completely gone because I've been mysterioed. You've been wonked. <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, anything else that you can think of that you want to say about Spider-Man? No, just that it's, a, it's an all-round good egg. We've only seen it once. We need to go and see it again. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, yeah. Job for this week. Scores out of 10? Damn, I'm going to go 10. Yeah, it, I mean, I, that, that was my review. If you head over to the to the website, getyourcomicon.co.uk, my review is there and I gave it a 10 out of 10. And I stand by that. I, I stand by the fact that it's not perfect, but it is by far, and I'm, I'm sorry to my, to my homeboys at, at DC, and he said at Marvel, um, but it, it is the best comic book movie so far this year. It is a right royal summer romp. <laughs> it is. So Spider-Man Far From Home is in cinemas now, and it was it's sure to be out for the rest of the summer. So uh, definitely, if you haven't seen it, you have to, because it is just the best time you're going to have at this, the cinema this summer. And that wraps things up for this week. We are done with episode 18, Get Your Comic On. We will be back in two weeks' time, which is, and I'm going to look at the calendar, and we're going to schedule a date for recording this one. Um, two weeks' time will, in fact, be my birthday week. No, it won't. It'll be the week after it. It'll be the 30th. Tuesday the 30th. Uh, we will hopefully be back with a new episode. And what will we have by then? Uh, the Boys will be out, Amazon, which uh, I have watched, and we would have talked about this week if we had enough time. If you want to read uh, my review on season one, it's it's out now. It came out today. The embargo lifted today. And The Boys itself drops its uh, eight-episode first season on Amazon Prime on July the 26th. What's July the 26th, Marty? London mm. Film and Comic Con. And it's your birthday. Thank you. Yes, more importantly, it's also my birthday. What else have we got that's coming up in the next couple of weeks? We need to talk about Stranger Things. 
Yeah. That, again, if we had time, we would have told you about Stranger Things this week, but we just don't have the time, Super Friends. Next time, next time. If you've not watched it, run out and watch it now. We'll be talking about it. There will be spoilers, and it is amazing. It is so good. So good. And I'm sure we'll dig out some comics as well to talk about. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff coming out. We've got more Deceased. Yeah, more Leviathan. More Leviathan. Jimmy Olsen, Superman's pal, also starts this week, which could be interesting. I've got issue one lined up, ready to read. Very good. And while the next couple of episodes are Swamp Thing, we also need to catch up on Young Justice. There's been five new episodes and we've only seen one so far. Plenty of things to watch and to do. As always, if you've got any recommendations for things you want us to read, to watch, to do, um, I don't know what we would do that you would recommend, uh, then... <laughs> <laughs> drop us a line at the usual uh, the usual addresses um, and we look forward to catching up with you in a couple of weeks say goodbye Martin goodbye Martin <laughs> bye bye